You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a father and his young daughter living in a poor provincial French town. Now, the father was a widower, an inventor, a kind of quirky man. And his daughter was curious and intelligent and bright. And she was an ambitious young woman who had, who had grand aspirations that didn't really fit her tiny little town. Now, one day, the father goes away on a trip to go to the market to sell some of his goods, and he winds up lost in the forest. And he seeks shelter in a castle. But in this castle dwells a horrible, angry beast who locks him away from sheer spite. And the daughter loves her father. So she seeks him out, and she finds this castle and meets this horrible beast, and she makes a deal that she will take her father's place. Her father can go, if her father can go free, and she will agree to live with the beast forever. And the beast agrees, sets the father loose, and the young girl spends the rest of her life in the castle. The end. Now that is not the story of Beauty and the Beast, is it? Well, at least it's the story cut in half. But cutting the story in half doesn't simply have the effect of leaving out some information. It skews the whole center of gravity of the story. No longer is it a story about the the redeeming power of love over hard and bitter and angry hearts. Now it's a story of a, a sacrificial young woman who gives up her life to save her father. And as great as that is, that's not the story of Beauty and the Beast. This is just about how the church has treated what it knows as the parable of the prodigal son. Even calling it the parable of the prodigal son makes it seem like the main point of the story is this young spend, uh, young man who runs off and squanders his father's wealth and is received back home. But when we take the whole story, what we realize, and we look at it in its setting, what we realize is that, that the younger son is really just setting you up for the main point of the story, which isn't really about him at all. And by only telling half the story, the church has changed it. It has changed it. It has skewed its meaning and thrown the whole story off what Jesus is trying to do with it. And if we want to take it seriously, we need to go back, listen to the whole thing, listen to it in its context, and not cut the story in half so that we can hear what Jesus is actually trying to say with this story. Because this is not the parable of the prodigal son. And I want, if I could, I would wipe that name from your memory. It is the parable, Jesus says, of the man who had two sons. And unless we understand both of these sons and the man who is their father, we will miss the point Jesus is trying to make. So today I want to reflect on each of these characters and how knowing each of them works together to help teach us something about God and, well, helps us hear what Jesus wants us to hear. The first one is, of course, the easy one, the younger brother. He is the one who demands his inheritance while his father is still alive, saying, basically, Dad, I wish you were dead because your stuff is more important to me than you are. Now, this, it's not hard to imagine just how deeply grieving this would be to a father who loves his son. But if we hear this with ancient ears, with first century ears, the ears of Jesus' original hearers, we'd realize there's more going on here. 
It's not just a personal insult. It's a public dishonor that this son has humiliated the father before the entire community and said to all, you're as good as dead to me. He has brought shame on their whole family. And the father divides the spoil or divides the house between them. This doesn't just hurt the father. This hurts the whole community. Because when the son liquidates his third share, that means he's selling off land that has belonged to that family for generations and lost their family claim, squandering it on a wild living, Jesus says. And if we heard with the ears of the first century audience, we'd know that the younger brother has shamed his father, he has hurt the community as a whole, and he deserves a beating, at, at, at the least. At the very minimum, he deserves is a public shaming that corresponds to what he has done to his community and to his father. What he probably deserves is to be stoned and driven out forever. And it's easy to think, well, so, so when he winds up in the lowest of low positions, feeding pigs, homeless, foodless, hungry, and starving, no one having pity on him or giving him anything, the hearer is going to think, yeah, that's about what he deserves. Maybe a little bit worse. But the elder brother, the older one, he's not exactly faring much better in the eyes of Jesus' original hearers because he agreed to the dividing up of the inheritance. When it says the father divided it between them, that, that older brother had to consent to that in order to have it happen. What he should have done is publicly said, no, this is not going to happen. This shames my father. I am not going to assent to it. But he did. And so in the ears of the hearer, he is a suspicious character. And that suspicion is vindicated when we get to the end of the story. And the father has re-received the younger brother, thrown a great party for him to show to the whole community, I am forgiving my son. And the whole community, by coming to this party, is saying, okay, we receive him too. But the elder brother does not. He stays outside the party, publicly saying, no, Father, you are wrong. I will not receive him back. He has also publicly shamed his father. And the father does for him something that the, 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 the crowd would have said, why on earth are you doing this? He went out of the party, leaving the party publicly, humiliating himself to go plead with his older brother to come into the feast. And the, younger, and the older brother's scorn for his father it is laid bare in the way he responds. Look, these many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat. But this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you gave him the fattened calf. <coughs> the truth is, is that neither son is interested in the father. Neither son loved their father. One, of it, one son did it by asking for the father's stuff ahead of time. The other did it by trying to obey all the father's rules in expectation of getting the father's stuff. He has reduced his relationship with his father to a transaction of obedience and reward. So in the eyes of Jesus' original audience, the elder brother deserves a beating as well. Both have shamed their father. Both have scorned them. And neither of them deserves a place in his household. So that should ask, leads us to ask, well, what is the difference between them? Because clearly there is a difference. And that is another point in this parable which should be pretty surprising. Because our instinct would say, okay, well, the younger son repented. He came back to the father. And that's true. But Jesus puts some detail in the story that makes us wonder, well, is repentance the right word to call this? Maybe. But listen to the logic 
that the son says to himself. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread and I perish here with hunger? Is he sorry for what he's done? Is he remorseful for the hurt and the shame he's brought on his father? Or is he just hungry? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's not clear that remorse, regret, or shame at his actual sin is what's driving him as much as an empty stomach. So what is it then that makes his repentance admirable, that makes it the positive part of the story? Well, I think it's this. He knows what he deserves from the father. He knows what he's done from the father. He knows what he deserves from the community. But he is willing to bet his life on the father's mercy. He's willing to bet that that father's mercy will at least be enough to get him a job so he won't die. And even this paltry, self-centered hope in the mercy of the father is enough for the father. And the father runs out to embrace him. Not just because he loves him so much, but because he's trying to protect him from the community so they don't give him the beating he deserves. And he clothes him with his robe and adorns him with his jewelry to say, I am re-receiving you, not as a servant, not as a slave, not as guilty, but as my son, who was dead and is alive now. The elder brother doesn't understand this. He actually despises the father for it. The unfairness of it, the exuberance of his father's joy gushing over this younger brother. So the difference between the two is that the younger banks his life on the father's mercy and the older brother despises him for it. And that invites us to ask, well, what is the context for Jesus telling this story? Which we've included in the gospel lesson, the beginning of chapter 15. It is a very clear context. He is dining with sinners and tax collectors. And then the Pharisees and the experts in the law, those who see themselves as on the right side of God, despise him for it. So it's not hard to decode this parable. The younger brother corresponds to the sinners and the tax collectors, and the older brother corresponds to the Pharisees. So Jesus is, in the first place, saying, neither of you are in the right. One of you has sought out creation, some aspect of the world that you love more than God. The other has tried to commodify God and enslave him to your obedience. But one of you understands his mercy and the other does not. Because the father's mercy, his surprising mercy, is really the heart of the story. The younger brother banks his life on it. The older brother despises him for it. But the father's mercy is the thing that people in the first century would not have been able to wrap their minds around. Because what the father has done is he has humiliated himself. To your first century here, as they're listening to this story, they're going to think, this father is a fool. He is getting taken advantage of by his son. He is shaming himself. He ran. Why don't Middle, Middle Eastern men do not run? They will show their ankles, and that is bad. They have to pull up their, their, their robes. They do not leave a party when their son is publicly shaming them. They do not plead with their sons. But this merciful father has humiliated himself before his entire community and before his sons simply because he loves them. And this brings us near to the heart of the parable because people, will, as they've used this parable through time, they've wondered, well, where is the cross in all this? 
The father just receives the son. It doesn't seem like there's any cost, no atonement, nothing that is given up for the sake of reconciling this younger brother. But when we hear it through the ears of a first century hearer, we can see quite clearly where the cost is. It is in the father's dignity. The father has humiliated himself. He has turned himself into a weak fool in the eyes of all his community as he re-embraced and wrapped this pigsty of a son in his clean robes. He has scorned his reputation, leaving his feast to go reconcile an obstinate son. This is what the ministry of Jesus is all about. The weakness and foolishness of a God who loves sinners, who has humbled himself, who hiked up his robes and ran out to get us, taking on our flesh, taking on our sin, taking on our suffering, our, our disappointment, our anger, our fear, our resentment, bearing it all within himself on a cross and letting it bear him into the ultimate humiliation of death, where he bleeds out. See, Jesus is inviting us to understand his whole ministry as the weakness of God that is stronger than the strength of men and the foolishness of God that is wiser than the wisdom of men. A God whose compassion and mercy for his people runs so much deeper then we could dare hope. And to see in Jesus' whole ministry, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, the mercy of the Father running out to embrace people like us. Well, some of us, right? The edge, the barb, at the end of this parable, is that it's not exactly clear whether the Son comes into the feast, is it? Like last week's parable, Jesus has left this one with a hanging ending. A hanging ending that puts a question mark, not only behind, does the son come in? But am I going to come in? Are you going to come in? You've been invited to a feast with some people that maybe you look down on. Maybe you've got some good reasons to look down on them. You've been invited to a feast with a God who consorts with all sorts of things that don't make sense in your world. And Jesus is inviting those, those, not just the tax collectors, but the Pharisees. He is pleading with the Pharisees and the experts in his law to understand the God they think they own, to understand the God that they worship, and not exclude themselves from the feast. Don't wait outside. Don't let your anger and your entitlement and your resentment think that you have earned something and therefore lead you to stay out of the feast where earning is completely off the table. So that should lead us to ask then, why have we the church butchered this story? Why does someone tell a story and leave out parts? Is it because the church is the elder brother? who doesn't like this haunting question mark that has been placed behind its very existence. We, pastors and teachers, find ourselves convicted by this possibility that maybe we will exclude ourselves from the feast because we can't stand the people that God's brought. But Jesus is the mercy of God pleading with us. Whether you are a younger brother who has given yourself over to part of God's creation that you think is better than him, whether, you, whether you're a younger brother who thinks, you know what, I cannot be happy without this stuff. And that stuff's more important to me than God. Jesus' invitation to you is this. 
trust God and love God first. Because what God has actually promises you is an inheritance and a new creation. And everything good you love about this creation is but a foretaste and a sample of what you have when you have him. And what your future is when you have God. Or maybe you're in the situation of the older brother. And you feel the resentment and the anger and the pain or the, or the, the sense of, ex, of entitlement that would lead you to not want to be at church with some other people. Maybe kinds of people, maybe they're particular people. Then Jesus pleads with you in this parable, come and join the feast. Where deserving has nothing to do with it. And know the mercy of God, which has given itself and humbled itself and made a fool of itself for sinners like you. Amen. And may the peace that passes all understanding, all human understanding, may it guard your hearts and minds in our crucified and our risen Lord. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.